0: go okay. it is 1 30 p.m on the 22nd of where are we september 2019 and uh you're tuning in to run Chat live episode 34 um it's actually a year since i started with episode one just some ramblings about my trip to uh kenya and running with a few of the guys out there and setting up a gate lab uh, that's what inspired it all um so yeah years gone by and here we are with episode 34 um which again i mean i always say it but i'm really been looking forward to actually i've especially been looking forward to this because for one reason or another we've had to kind of cancel it a couple of times um and our guest is someone who i've followed for a long time and he's provided a lot of education and entertainment along the way um in terms of online debate um, a very big figure, Dr. Derek Griffin, who I'm very excited to bring you today. Again, if you're aware of Derek, then I think he'll be um, this will be a great opportunity for you to hear him talking for an hour. Um, sometimes with Twitter and Facebook, it's very difficult to get to discuss something properly with just words. Um, so I'm hoping that yeah, it'll be a really nice opportunity to actually see Derek. If you um, join us live, which I always encourage'll you be able to ask some questions, leave some comments. Uh, but if you're listening to the podcast, then thank you very much for uh, joining us as well and supporting us. That in mind, first of all, let's get some duties out of the way. So, as always, our podcast is uh, sponsored by the Brighton Beard Company. Um, www.thebrightonbeardcompany.co.uk Let's bring a little flash of that up. Yes, and um, there's no getting away from it, obviously, that I am bearded. And uh, these are the guys who I go to for all of my grooming needs. So whether it's balms or oils or brushes or bags to put the lot in. And um, they really are a really nice bunch of people. It's all natural. It's all uh, carefully made and uh, for me of great importance is it all smells great as well which if you have got a beard or you know someone has got a beard um that's one of the reasons we have a beard it's just lovely to have that waft of uh, fantastic balm all day long it's nice it makes the, it's the little things in life which make everything useful so um brighton beer company thank you very much they are our sponsors um also like to mention that, that um belive online studio who we used to make this recording has still got the offer i mentioned last week and if you're interested in starting a podcast or interviewing a few guests remotely so people on the other side of the world or then you want to test it out Um, and one way of testing it for free with no credit cards or anything like that is by going to trial.b.live forward slash podcasting so that's trial.b.live forward slash podcasting and if you do that before the end of um the month so if you do it in september you'll get 30 days free trial Of the software Um, and also just by doing that you'll get put into your name will get put into a hat to win a Blue Yeti USB microphone Um, a bit like this isn't a Blue Yeti but it's a USB microphone which makes all the difference believe me in terms of sound quality um, rather than just depending on your laptop Um, so yeah great opportunity the Live Online Studio, I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but I use it. It's, it's very simple. You get to use all your branding. You can bring images up. You can have up to 10 guests. It's very nice and simple for the guests. All they need is a Facebook account. Um, it, I've tried a lot in my time with Skype and Zoom and Google Hangouts and far as i'm concerned but live tv hits a lot of the uh, things that i'm looking for so yeah do recommend you give it a go right um anything else i need to mention oh yeah the last thing i do before i bring uh, dr griffin up is um we released news of the student tickets for um the rcl international running conference coming up october the 30th 31st it's only um, just over a month away uh, dr griffin like dr moore last week um are both speaking there along with Simon Bartold, Christopher Johnson, um, who else? Mike James, Jack Chu, Derek, uh, Ian Griffiths, uh, Paul Coker, Paul Westwood. Uh, who am I missing out? I always miss out some people. i said Simon Bartold. Anyway, there's 10 of them and they're great. I've managed to get them all together, which I am humbled by under one roof. So, yeah, student tickets have gone out. We've taken 70 percent off. I mean, the uptake for students has been low. And then, I mean, I'm not surprised. I know you guys, undergraduates, haven't got much money. But I'm doing this for runners. There'll be news of a runner discount next week. But for the moment, students, it's 60, 60, 60, 69 quid. I think it's 69 pounds. It's very cheap. It's a 70% discount for both days. So do go to rcl2019.ovenbright.com and check it out. Uh, Even if you're just going to one day, I mean, in all honesty, even if you decide I don't want to stay, 69 pounds is still huge. Each day you'll get five presentations from world class speakers and you'll get a 90 minute question time. You've got um, exhibitors there, including Sports Injury Fix, who are a fantastic company uh, to help you with online booking, to help you uh, get found uh, by people looking for your skills. And also Run3D will be their gate analysis company from Oxford University uh, with a live demo of their software. Uh, they've got a treadmill, the whole shebang's coming, which I'm very excited about. So, yeah. Come down for one day or two students. It'll be a mat. It's in half term. So you haven't got any classes. Um, It's a huge opportunity. Okay, and that's why I brought the price down to literally cover costs. Um, So do have a look. Right. Is that done? Is that done? Everything I need to mention is done. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so Derek Griffin has been waiting patiently there in the background. if you don't know Derek, then he's a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist with a PhD in the area of chronic musculoskeletal pain. Um, he's very, very influential. Um, I think that's the right word. Yeah, I think so. If you follow Twitter and Facebook, then he's a big player in, in bringing out the research, bringing out the critical analysis of traditional therapies based on what we now know, and things have changed. Um, I've had the pleasure of watching, not heated, but just very arguments which kind of are backed up with critical thinking there's very rare that you'll catch Derek in a in one of these arguments with kind of like logical fallacies or because he knows his stuff he's a very intelligent guy so I really do recommend you follow him um, he often is challenged by equally um, intelligent people so the debate when you follow Derek Griffin online is is definitely interesting and worthwhile um, so I would definitely do that but I'm bringing him up here for an hour just with me for you to watch as well. So I'm very excited. So I'm going to do that now. I'm going to give Derek a five-second countdown and then um, we'll see what he has to say about evidence-based running into assessment. There we go. Dr. Griffin. Hi, Matt.
1: Thanks for having me. Delighted to be able to speak with you today.
0: No, it's, it's the, the honour is all mine. Thank you so much. I know you're a very busy man, um, well, 90% of the time you're out running. Um, and also, thank you again, I'll just say it out loud, for, for um, being one of the speakers at the conference. It's very gracious of you to come over from Ireland.
1: It'll be a pleasure looking, looking forward to it. Not long to go now.
0: There's not. Um, and I, I can't lie i mean last week i said izzy moore dr izzy moore she is the speaker who who other speakers are most looking forward to listening to but i can tell you that you are in position number two after izzy it's good to hear is that okay i know you're not used to being number two and that probably inside you're burning up but i don't know there you go (laughs) you're at the top (laughs) um so anyway yes thank you so much for joining us um I'm very. I mean, I followed you for a long time, and I really wanted you on this show. One of the first names that came into my mind, where I was like, "Wow, I could actually start introducing some of these people to a larger audience," um, was definitely you. Were there, so I'm really pleased that we finally managed to get you um, on the show. So, thank you very much. Um, why don't you, yeah, introduce yourself? Let's start off without me talking for a change. Introduce yourself and tell us what you do.
1: So, as 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 you alluded to, I'm I'm a full time clinician. Um, so primarily, um, in the area of chronic or persistent musculoskeletal pain, but across musculoskeletal orthopedics and in the last two or three years, I'm seeing a larger rheumatology cohort. Um, so I have a very varied role. Um, I I see lots of different types of presentations. I also see some acute presentations, but the, the, the vast majority of my caseload would be people with various forms of persistent pain conditions.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested. I mean, like I said, you're one of my go to guys for getting up to date with the, the effect that kind of modern or contemporary pain sources have on our practice on a clinical level. But a lot of the evidence we've got is is from kind of lower back pain that's been used as a sample population, a lot of research. What's the carryover like? I mean, is it fair for some people to say, ah, oh, yes, but just because this has all comes from lower back pain, we can't necessarily translate or bring it through to when we work with runners? Do you think there is a much of a carryover with what modern kind of pain science tells us?
1: Yeah. I think the important thing to remember is regardless of what we're treating or who we're treating, it's, it's, we're, we're always treating a person with pain. And we know regardless of whether it's an athletic population or... A sedentary population that there's always going to be a host of various factors involved now while while the various factors may differ the underlying principles of assessment will will, will be the same it's about looking at factors across the biopsychosocial spectrum so there, there's while there's while there's variations obviously of course between these various populations as i said the you know pain is, is always going to be influenced by a multitude of factors, irrespective of, of who you're dealing with. So person-centered care is is where we should be looking at.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I remember, I think, um, when we were talking about what you were going to present at the conference, I think I think the tagline was putting the runner back into running injuries, which I think was great. I mean, that encapsulates, that could be the name of a book. Or maybe you are working on. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud. But yeah, it's a that, that encapsulates pretty much everything, doesn't it? Putting the runner back into running injuries.
1: Yeah, because I, I think in particularly in the athletic world or in the sporting population, there's still uh, there's still a tendency to confuse pain with tissue damage. Now we know that that's that's probably a big issue a- across all populations, but the, the fundamental. our our fundamental understanding of pain nowadays is that pain is simply not a good measure of tissue damage. So while injury and changes at the tissue level are important contributors to pain, the ultimate pain experience is influenced by a whole host of other factors. And I'm not sure that we see that type of an approach applied in the sporting world just yet, as we would say, in a, as you alluded to, a, a chronic low back pain population. So I think it's an opportunity for me to see how I feel that we should be applying a similar model of care to the sporting population as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. It was interesting the other day. I mean, I do some um, courses for massage therapists. And one of the things I enjoy doing and the reason I do them is I kind of like trying to introduce them to things which they've studied which aren't necessarily true they've ticked the boxes they've said that oh yeah massage helps blood flow massage does this they've been taught about getting toxins out of the body all these kind of things you still need at the moment to pass the exam but i like dropping a few little kind of i don't they are probably bombshells but i try and dress up a little bit more about our understanding of pain we do a little section on on what we're actually trying to achieve with massage are we breaking down tissues or are we actually massaging the nervous system and so on and it was interesting the last workshop I did where there was a lady who she was clued up to the extent that she started talking about somebody one of her clients who suffered from I think it was a mother actually suffered from fibromyalgia and she was saying that um she started saying that um it was really difficult knowing when the pain that her mum was in her head or when it was actually real and that was an interesting thing i thought i flagged that and i didn't have time on the course to actually go through i just said to her, make sure you realize that pain is always real there's no such thing as just in your head or just in the body but do you think that's still especially for for runners and patients and maybe some clinicians it's still a danger of separating the two
1: Absolutely. So I, I did some media work there recently for um, as part of the pain Aware- awareness month and the and the WCPT's um, physiotherapy um, day, which was which the topic was chronic pain this year. And you know, in in my conversation with the journalist, I, I was saying you know that we need to we need to get the message across to these people that irrespective of what factors might be contributing to your pain, that the that the pain is always real. So the danger of when we talk about factors like stress and the psychosocial factors, the danger is that the message that the patient hears is that this is all in your head. But I think as clinicians, we can use various analogies to try to as, but try to minimize that risk. So for example, in the clinic, if we give you an example of somebody that has had, you know, is at risk of heart, of heart disease or had, had a, has had a, um, a cardiovascular event, you know, clinicians will generally talk to these people about the role of various factors, which will include things like nutrition, exercise and lifestyle habits, sleep, um, and the psychosocial factors that we know link to heart disease, so stress, etc. No different than cardiovascular disease is, is real. You know, just because these factors contribute to pain don't make don't make pain any less real than than any of these other chronic conditions that that, that we see people present to healthcare professionals with so it, it's around educating them that pain while while it doesn't have a we don't have a direct way of measuring it other than asking somebody to describe their experience it, it's it's not any different than any other um, chronic musculoskeletal or chronic condition that, that that people live with there's going to be various factors that that are involved in both the leading to the condition and and, and how people need to address, um, address it and manage
0: it. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's one of the, it, well, it should in theory be one of the biggest challenges for any clinician these days, I think. Um, it's all very well taking this on and understanding implications, but getting that through to the patient without raising that idea, oh, so you're saying it's all in my head. I think that's one of the trickiest things. You know, I applaud any course which manages to Fuel therapists with a way of getting past that because it's yeah, it's tricky, and it'll often depend on the patient in front of you how you do it, and yeah, it's a tricky one. How yeah, about? And, and um, the, oh, go on.
1: No, I, I was just going to say there's a lot of work that we need to do in looking at our, our our educational strategies and how we go about presenting this some of this new information, especially because some people are hearing this for the first time in the clinic. So, if we're really to shift that mindset, that you know, that pain is is real and that it can be influenced by all of these other factors i I think it has to start at at school level so there's almost just there's a need for a societal shift in in how we understand pain but but to get this information to the masses and to get this information to people before they develop pain is would, would be something really important but it's obviously a very difficult thing to to do
0: yeah even at school level it's so true I mean, even, yeah, at parenting level, it's bringing up the kid. I mean, we kind of do it automatically, don't we? It's funny because I've got kids now four and a half and two and a half. And every time they fall over, and it happened like for at least five times today, when they fall over, straight away, we kind of go, go on, stand up, brush your hands. I give them kind of a distraction technique. So rather yeah. than suddenly thinking, it's the whole thing, isn't it? If you look at them and go, oh, are you okay? Then guess what they start freaking out screaming and they're feeling the equivalent of pain it's an emotional turmoil But if you just brush it off and tell them to brush their hands and get on with it it's gone you know so we kind of understand with kids that that works and yet at some point during i don't know when it happens but suddenly we forget that and with adults we don't do that anymore we kind of start telling them oh yeah you probably slipped a disc or you've probably done this or it could be degeneration or you know it's when does know, like you say i mean what well, you, you let's imagine you we need a prime minister over here in the uk let's imagine you you had the spot um how would you do it how would you start changing this at a basic level
1: yeah i i think there's so many different stakeholders um involved that the first thing is, is to try to get a a message to the patient that that i suppose the same message from 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 the various people that they, that they end up coming in contact with the, you know, the problem that many clinicians have is that particularly with people with chronic conditions, they're, they're seeing various healthcare professionals and they're often getting mixed messages. So I think at a, even at the undergraduate training, you know, for physiotherapists, um, doctors, anybody that's involved in, inpatient care, you know, there's an onus on, on these institutions to be looking at, I suppose, getting getting these healthcare professionals to understand concepts around self-management and 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 pain pain management, you know, much earlier in their training so that when when they're in, when they're eventually seeing patients that that they're giving them these these positive um, messages. But but broader than that, you know, introducing some of this stuff in into school curriculums or, you know, into you know, the, an emphasis on lifestyle, physical activity, et cetera, from a very, very young age, just promoting health literacy and health awareness and getting people active. There's, you know, there's, it's, it's a very complex topic, as you said, but there's, there's so many different stakeholders involved. It's, it's, it's very hard to accomplish that.
0: Most definitely, which is why I think I celebrate it whenever I mean, you've been in the I think it's the Irish independent a couple of times. Is it now a few times you've managed to make it through into kind of national press, which I just applaud. because It seems to be such a challenge to get, you know, a learned up to date physiotherapist actually being quoted as opposed to someone who's part of the part of the problem. Yeah, well, um, I
1: suppose I see, I see it as part. I almost see that as part of my role. You know, I, I think. I would like to see more clinicians doing that because part of my 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 duty is to is to educate people and to get this information out to them and, and running public health campaigns in the national newspaper is obviously a, a very effective way of 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 doing that. So I would like to see more clinicians engage with with patients at a societal level or not just not even just patients, but engage at a societal level with the public to try to reshape some of the the negative information and, and, and to counteract some of this negative information. And the um, I suppose the non-evidence based statements that we often read in, in the paper.
0: But do you think the barrier, I was under the impression that the barriers, the people like yourself don't get approached enough and they'll go for the list. The editor's got a list of people who are ready and to, to give a little quote, um I mean, why how did you get approached and and Mary O'Keefe isn't it how did you two both get approached what was the situation there
1: uh well I I suppose it, it works it works both ways I think clearly that 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 is a barrier but there's also the option for for physios or, and other clinicians I, I'll probably say physios a lot of time just That's because good. it's the it's the one that comes to mind, but you know there there's still opportunities there to approach lo- local local organisations, even even not at a national level, but just in your in your own locality. So to organise um information nights for GPs, other healthcare professionals, um public public talks. So there's there's other ways to do it that that don't involve the media. Um, in in terms of our specific um engagements with the media um some of those were initially came came through um through mary and and while mary was um when she was based in ireland doing doing her phd that that's when we did a lot of um we did a lot of that work and it's quite interesting because we've we've done a few pieces now but the very earlier piece we did there was a very mixed reaction so there there was a great clinical reaction but but we got very mixed um messages from from i suppose the public and from patients and and i i actually think mary collected a number of those um responses that we got so we had to reflect on that and having reflected on that that initial piece that we published i suppose it may have come across as as being a bit blunt at times you know this is the this is the danger when there isn't a person in front of you and you're just putting pen to paper so the second time we did another piece we um we were very conscious of making it much more like a story and, and changing, changing the wording um, compared to the first piece that we did. And I, I think eventually we actually got a person with pain to have a look through it and, and just to kind of reword aspects of it to make it to make the flow better and, and to, um, I suppose, to make it more relevant to the to the, the patient population. So it was it was a learning curve for us, for sure, but a very rewarding experience having come out the other side.
0: I think often the battle is getting I mean working with the editor I mean they're professionals they know what's going to sell They they know what the public what's going to make the public stay on that page and not just turn it over so as always in life yeah like you say there's your message there's the facts and then there's their skills and being able to change it just a little bit to make it more readable and palatable for the average kind of you know John or, or Jane Doe but i think that's where part of the problem goes because the editors will get involved and suddenly they'll give it a headline or a photo the number of times i see a i don't know top 10 strength exercises for runners and they'll stick someone doing a hamstring stretch you know with a leg up on it it's just the stock photo comes out you know and then even the subtitle which the writer's got nothing to to to, you know nothing to do with will suddenly change and it's quite horrific when you get the proof back and it's like i never said that what have you put that in for did you have complete control over your entry into the paper or did you get a proof were you able to make sure nothing like that happened
1: we we, we did for most of those people most um, pieces thankfully so we we were able to write the piece. I suppose it was written by us rather than written by the journalist. The journalist obviously and the editor obviously would have approved it, but we had the opportunity to write the piece um, and and they and and subsequently they published it. So thankfully we had control over the language that um, that we use. And the more recent pieces that I've done, um, the journalist was very cooperative as well and and actually you know really wanted to get an accurate message across so it was important to the journal as it was as important to the journalist as it was me that that the message that we're that we're giving across here is is an accurate reflection of the science.
0: I think it's probably like we just said you've got to get a relationship with the the people there and I mean I see I mean I write for a couple my one magazine now and I've written for a few years so in the beginning, there was a little bit of, no, you can't put that down as a subtitle. It totally doesn't mean what I've said, or you can't use that stock photo, or, or you can't cut out that paragraph because it just ruins the message. But I think when I see other articles, and there's plenty of people online who will very quickly post them up and mock and shame them. But a lot of the time, I think it is the editor's fault or the sub-editor's fault, um, you know, rather than the actual author themselves. It does get kind of bastardized and twisted around before it gets to the general public, which is a shame. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that is all that is a danger but you know i i think the benefits of of getting some of this information out there outweigh the risks but as you said it is it is a danger that the message gets lost or gets changed before it reaches publication
0: it's interesting i think it's a very interesting point that you've said i mean maybe therapists could be more proactive in trying to approach papers or approach i mean i remember roger kerry as well i think i think it was the independent as well but he managed to get into a um international newspaper as well i think he had a piece on running shoes you know and he came I mean they quoted him saying I'll run in a pair of 20 pound shoes from Asda or something or you know but it was an isolated piece I think that was about probably five years ago and again I applauded it and it should have sent shockwaves through the whole of the media and but I, don't yeah. know, I haven't seen anything since so I imagine there are barriers I don't know
1: well, well i think i think clinicians have to be more be, pro, be more proactive we shouldn't we shouldn't need a world physiotherapy day to suddenly start educating the people about chronic pain you yeah. know if, if if people can do it on that day you know that that can be done on a more regular basis and not just chronic pain i i don't mean that you know it's just chronic pain we need to be educating people about but you know, health literacy and public health awareness is, is a huge topic and uh, physiotherapists and other clinicians, we play a huge role in, in health promotion. And the only way we're going to help that is to be going out there into the community and, and engaging with the community and keeping people healthy, not even just patients. We should be interacting with these people before they become patients.
0: I think it's a good point. There's some very valid, valid points which I never planned on talking to you about, which is the thing I love about getting someone live and talking to all these sort of things come up um so yeah some very good interesting points there let me just say hi to mike james he's in the house hi mike how are you doing and chris has joined us and gustavo torres um it's ironic as well again it's just confirmation bias the people who watch this show for example are people who i know live and breathe what we're saying anyway i wish we could get someone in there who was actually like well, what were you talking about or would start arguing or <laughs> defending it doesn't happen it's that's one of the tricky yeah, things oh, as well isn't oh. it with social media You're just absolutely
1: yeah we all bring our biases to the table and it's a ve- it's a very difficult thing to to, to get around and yeah. you know we'll, we'll be attracted to the information that that fits our narrative and fits our bias and and trying to take the other stuff on board is obviously a challenge for all of us
0: mind you you do sometimes like to hang out in places where you know that the most most of the people in there are not going to be on your page maybe or not on the same side yeah I
1: suppose, you know I- a lot of my while a lot of my work is in chronic pain. I, I I take you know I take a huge interest in a lot of other areas as well. So I read the literature quite widely, um, and I think that that has been very helpful because reading you know reading some of the the other areas that you wouldn't necessarily directly work in just give you that extra bit of it, you know that that extra bit of information is never wasted. It's never lost, and it and it just. You know, sharpens your clinical decision making because patients are different. They present with various um, various combinations of things. So, you know, contrary to what I suppose some, and again, this is the portrayal of what what how some people come across on social media is that that we're in a we're in a silo and we read a, a specific. Branch of the literature, but you know, for someone like me and many other clinicians, I would read a lot. I would read the biomechanic literature and read the exercise literature quite a lot, the the psychology literature, and it's it's a it's about just keeping an open mind from the various disciplines and 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 how we put all that information together when the patient is in front of you is the is the bit that that that's important.
0: That's cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, like I said at the beginning, i totally recommend that therapists follow you and i mean if you want a blueprint not again making your head too big for the screen but if therapists want a blueprint on how to stay up to date and how to debate and, and talk and because i noticed as well like you can get in some quite heated arguments but you you stay so polite and educated and you back it up with concise it's it's good to see i like it me personally i think mike yeah. and chris so, so thank you anyway right we labeled this um a, episode as we're going to Obviously, you want to appeal to runners in particular. Um, you're a runner yourself, you've got loads of experience. So to narrow it down, we're going to talk about running injury assessment. So runner comes through the door. Um, yeah. let's start off. I remember I saw a nice thing which you wrote or spoke about somewhere else about um about yellow flags, which is a is yellow flag still a useful thing to talk about?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's a useful concept, um, especially for for you know s- students and and maybe less experienced clinicians it, it, it gives a framework to for something that they can need to look at as an important part of an assessment
0: yeah i think so i mean that's something i definitely mention um, when working with people who've done basic courses because i'm not sure in physiotherapy maybe it comes up as a standard part of of the lectures and stuff but i'm not quite sure it gets talked about enough in other professions or definitely not sports massage and ther- sports therapy. But I like the comments I read about you you were talking about um noting the areas on a body chart that a patient marks. And it was interesting because in my time I got quite a I always used to get annoyed when receptionists in the clinic would hand the sheet to the patient to fill out whilst I was kind of finishing with the last patient it was like no I want to fill it out because I want to have a conversation with them but then you brought up the idea that you like the patient to fill it out because you like to see where they note on the body mark maybe um kind of how they note it and that sort of stuff um, which opened a new dimension to me I thought actually the guy's got a point give it to them because it's again you can tell a lot of information by what they put and how they put it so tell us a little bit about that
1: I suppose to begin with, I, I think a lot of that stems from there has been some literature which i, I can 't recall off the top of my head now that looks at a comparison when you when the clinician fills out the body chart and the patient fills out the body chart and how they actually compare and there's often quite a discrepancy in in what 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 they mark, so that probably tells me that you know when we fill out the the chart as clinicians that we're bringing our bias to the table rather than giving the patient an opportunity to to express their pain in a, you know, use using a body chart. So that I suppose that's the first reason. But the second reason is that we know that the spread of pain or, or the the number of pain sites is actually quite an important prognostic um, measure um, in in pain. And and the prevalence of multi site pain is actually quite high. So particularly for disabling or persistent pain states, it's actually quite rare that pain stays in the one area. It's, it's much more common that people report multiple pain areas. And we know that the more pain areas that people report, generally that's associated with higher rates of disability, poorer prognosis, and there's a higher psychosocial burden um, associated with that. So a lot of information can be gained from the body chart. And I think it's important to point out here is that it has been shown, particularly in David Coggins' work, who's done a lot of work on occupational-related um, pain, and he has shown that the prevalence of multisite pain is much higher than we would expect if this if this was a chance finding. So it's very unlikely that these different pain areas are are independent statistically; that that they almost reflect a uh, a phenotype of or, or a distinct clinical phenotype that we shouldn't see these various pain problems necessarily in isolation that they together reflect um, they're part of the pain state now that doesn't mean that the the physical factors aren't relevant here and, and I think that's the message that often gets lost in all of this you know while the while physical factors and, and tissue-based factors and peripheral nociception are are, are probably relevant in to some degree in most pain states, if someone presents and they have multiple pain sites, all it suggests is that there are other factors that are probably putting these people at risk of pain in general, rather than seeing it as, you know, distinct injuries in different parts of their body, that that there's some common factors that, that might be accounting for um, part of this variance.
0: Yeah, no, very interesting. It's um, It's almost like taking, because traditionally you'd put body charts into the objective part of the consultation but by looking at where they fill out how they fill it out how thick the line is um you're actually putting it more into the subjective as well aren't you giving them a chance to to express themselves and give you more valuable information um yeah, yeah i think it's great yeah. yeah it makes good sense um what else for example let's let's imagine that somebody is watching this whose ears have suddenly just pricked up they gone oh i never thought of that Tell me more about this subjective assessment kind of thing. Because I think it sometimes, especially for, well, I'm lucky because I've had private, I work in private. So i generally for the first appointment, I've always got an hour. Um, it's it's calm, peaceful, the patient's ready to talk. For for a physio, I guess, who's um, only got 15, 20 minutes, you know, both the patient and the physio aren't quite happy to talk so much. But tell us some of the other things which, which you think are kind of like hugely important factors to 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 address within the consultation
1: yeah well i suppose i'm in i'm in a similar position in that i have i have an hour with um with every new assessment and to me the story and the subjective history taken is 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 absolutely crucial and and i suppose i've done a lot of work um I've been I've done a lot of work teaching as well and in, interacting with students. And, you know, I suppose the traditional model has been is that the subjective has become a very kind of a formulated um, way of, of gathering information and that we we get it down in 15 or 20 minutes and then you move on to the subjective assessment. But I think what you'll actually find is with, with more experience, the subjective part actually becomes longer. Um, or it becomes much more intertwined with the objective assessment. I don't see them as distinct. So when you're examining somebody you know objectively quote unquote that you're still talking to them you're still interacting with them you're looking at their reactions their behaviors you're still you're still interacting with them and ch- and chatting to them and asking them these various questions so that's the first thing I, I don't see them as very distinct but if we if we take a runner for example so to try to make it relevant to to people listening on this podcast so as part of the subjective history i'm obviously interested in like what? What brings them to the clinic? You know, so just giving them an opportunity to to discuss their the issues and 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 you know ultimately why they're sitting in why they're sitting in front of me, and that may be pain, but more often you'll find that again with the runner, it's pain that's preventing them to run, or it has had a negative impact on their on their performance. So we we need to be very clear from the beginning and what what their primary concerns are, you know then we would look at you know what what might have been some of the factors that that contributed to that so we're, we're all very familiar these days with the concept of load monitoring and load management so you know we're i'm very interested in looking at what what changed in the lead up to this current problem so what 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 were, what were the variables that changed and within this obviously we're looking at the running related variables so i'm interested in their mileage changes in speed work any change in their training that you know, might have occurred in that typical four to six weeks. Um, I, I suppose, assuming here that this isn't an acute kind of a traumatic injury, which the vast majority of running injuries um, aren't, that that's slightly different. But I'm looking at what changed in the last um, in the last while and and this all comes under the umbrella of external load. So what these are the things we can measure: how far, how long, how often, how fast, what terrain. So the the very concrete, objective stuff and. Very often, you'll find that that will have some clues as to why they're why they're in front of you. There will have been a change in in volume and perhaps a change that they haven't been conditioned to to be able to adapt to, and, and the system has um has has reacted, and that may be injury or, or maybe and, and pain. But I think the bit we we tend to forget. I'm also interested in in the internal load, and you know. We can we can put a different term on this if we want. We can talk about we can talk about sleep, the psychosocial factors, so their mood, you know, their life stresses, all of these other factors that people have to deal with on a day to day basis. You know, runners are humans. At the end of the day, even at elite elite level, when it's their profession, they're still going to be outside influences. They're, they're going to have you know, there's there's the mental health aspects, there's their sleep, there's their nutrition um you know their medical history all these other various factors so you you can have two two similar people you could put them through the exact same training program but the adaptations or the or the physiology underpinning this is very different because all of these other factors that we associate with their internal load are different so it's it's not enough for me to have an idea of how how much or how fast these people are running i need to know how well their various body systems are able to cope with this, so you know what what their strength and capacity is like, but what how how well they regulate their mood, how well they sleep what what they eat, you know what their nutrition plans are like so there's a whole host of other factors that perhaps in the running world um have played second fiddle to the more traditional stuff around biomechanics and 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 simply looking at the external load and the physical factors in isolation
0: yeah no very interesting um well so much in that I, i love the way you say that the subjective and objective actually shouldn't be totally separate that even if you're doing a traditional assessment test you're not just looking at what degree they produce you looking at how quick they are to do that movement or you know the, any fear involved or any expectation or a belief they might have about doing that it's yeah a great message there
1: and the other thing it also it, that that concept also helps when you're talking about some of the psychosocial factors so you know when, when you're looking at how people are moving or things like that you know I would often in in the middle of that conversation just kind of, you know, ask them about something like, you know, any any life stresses at the moment. So it becomes a much more informal way of of asking these important questions rather than a very formal interview style type type assessment where, you know, you might get a little bit of resistance. Whereas if it becomes more informal part of a conversation, then then they don't see it as as something that, you you know, they see it a little bit differently.
0: Definitely know. Um, Mike James just asked a question. I'll read it out so people on the um, podcast can actually see it as well. Uh, Mike, the endurance physio James, says, uh, With students um, and less experienced therapists, the more structured subjective history taking is understandable to help ensure important things aren't missed. Uh, does Derek have any top tips to help this population of therapists become more um, free-flowing, so to speak, in their subjective history taking? um yeah did you get that does that make sense
1: yeah hi to mike um so I, I think the i think that's very relevant and i think that's um it's understandable you know clinicians they're very new to this and and it is important that we're screening for things that are that are a little bit out of the ordinary so we're always vigilant of these you know the small percentage of people we're they will present with pain and unfortunately it'll be attributable to something serious or an underlying medical condition that's not diagnosed so it's important that we um that we have a mechanism particularly for less experienced clinicians that that they don't miss uh miss out on these factors but i suppose it's it, it's always a challenge how do we get students doing it in a more in a less structured and uh, i suppose a little bit more of an informal uh, informal manner but as at university level, I think there's room for looking at like motivational interviewing type skills, the so-called soft skills that haven't traditionally been um, been taught. We also need to be, I suppose pairing the students and the more, the more inexperienced clinicians with more experienced clinicians. So actually giving them the opportunity to be mentored and to observe a, a lot of this. I, when I was, when I was doing my PhD, Every Friday afternoon, I sat in a, just sat observing in a pain clinic. Um And, you know, that might have been 25, 30 patients on a busy, on, in a busy outpatient clinic. And just that experience of sitting back and seeing other clinicians in action, but, but just having the opportunity to just listen to patients. And, you know, I wasn't asking the questions at that stage. And it gave me an opportunity to just listen and, and be able to reflect. So I think the only way the students can develop is when we put them in touch with clinicians and in environments that are conducive to allowing that type of an approach to happen. You know, too often they're into a setting or into their first job, and, and you know they're maybe not getting getting that type of mentoring that they that they require to develop these skills because it, it is a skill and we're all developing it all the time. So you know the answer to that question is multifaceted. But you know good mentors, good strong mentors, and some of those so called softer skills around interviewing and listening skills developed at a much earlier age in the or earlier part of the curriculum, I think, is a, is a crucial bit of that.
0: Yeah, that's a good, uh, yeah, that's a good answer. Hi, Mike, I hope that helps answer your question. Um, yeah, there's yeah. I mean, I've always I felt that maybe I got into therapy because originally the first kind of thing I really enjoyed and, and now I've gone back to it is teaching. So I and one of the things obviously you learn about teach, being a teacher or a lecturer is kind of making sure you don't do too much of the teacher talking time it's all about especially when I was teaching English as a foreign language you're always trying to elicit the answer from the patient um, because that's the way people learn languages you don't just want to translate it and I always think the carry through from that just even in, in any topic allowing the student to reach their conclusion allowing the student to give you an example or fitting what they've just learned into context all these basic teaching skills translate really accurately through to when you're trying to help somebody in pain I think um because again you're allowing them to come up with the answers what does the pain mean for them how would they describe it what do they think the issue is but i don't think again on a lot of the things healthcare practitioners are taught again you are you're not brought up as a teacher or an educator you're brought up as like um like an operator as opposed to facilitator where you've got the magic hand you've got the skills where you're going to fix somebody so, I guess that, yeah, we've got to teach therapists to become teachers and educators as opposed to kind of just technicians. Does that make sense
1: yeah i I think I like that whole concept of almost clinicians acting as um acting as a coach you know mm-hmm. it's 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 about listening to the to the individual and it, okay, it is our job to kind of help them piece the various bits of the puzzle together to make make it a bit more make a bit more sense to them but then kind of plan that journey in terms of how we're going to do to help them better cope and manage that
0: mm. i remember i mean when i did a while back now when i did the kind of um i think it was uk athletics at the time i can't remember they changed the name now but the coaching kind of uh certification and that a lot of it was teaching you how to be a coach it wasn't teaching you about different types of runners or foot strike or these things it was showing you how to demonstrate how to make sure that everyone can see everyone can understand getting the runners who you're coaching to kind of repeat what you've just said the instructions or giving visual demonstrations and again it made me think this is great you're teaching coaches how to be coaches regardless of what you're actually the information you're giving you're educating people how to be educators and I get the impression yeah. that with a lot of the CPD that goes around and the courses that are offered and I read all about what's being offered and there's not enough of this um, which we're expecting clinicians these days to be educators but how much CPD is out there helping clinicians become educators.
1: Yeah it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge and and again you know we, we need to be promoting more of that and maybe even promoting it within the clinical setting, you know, you again, I go back to this idea of, of of other clinical mentors and other people that have experience in this in in this area, and just just observing and getting people to observe and, and critique, and 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 just having a very open relationship that, you know, that you can offer some advice to some some colleague, but but the coll- your colleagues can can equally um, look at look at what you're doing and and perhaps give their um give their input as well and you have to have a good working relationship between between these various healthcare professionals
0: yeah definitely and there's another question here from daniel osteopath from glasgow and let's put it up i'll read it out for people who listen to the podcast so daniel gerber um, says does Derek go into nutrition plans with lower end newer recreational runners does he advise or does he refer on? So that's going back to what you're saying about making sure you look at the internal load. Is it something which you feel you're able to comment on or do you feel that's kind of not your area? Yeah. You refer? What do you well,
1: do? yeah, look, well, it, it, it is in my area, but I, I will, I will generally ask them about their nutrition just to, just to get a sense of what, what, what their nutrition entails. But if, if I feel in any way that it might be a significant contributing factor, um, you know, be it they be underweight or that, you know, just subjectively, they're they're reporting issues with appetite or, or food, then in those situations, absolutely to refer to a registered dietitian that 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 can give them more specific advice. So I suppose to answer Dan's question is I don't I, I, I bring up the bring up the idea just so I'm aware that this is something that might need to be addressed. But it's it's not something that I directly um I engage the patient with, no.
0: Yeah. So in other words, it's a conversation you've got to have to raise any potential red flags and then have that kind of referral network to be able to pass it on to somebody who, again, it's so tricky with referring, isn't it? I guess in time you surround yourself with people, who you know, on the same page, but nutrition itself and dietitians, there can be a lot of variance, can't they, in, in what the advice they give?
1: Yeah. So, and again, I suppose that's just time developing working relationships with various healthcare professionals and you know and meeting up with these healthcare professionals to discuss the various concepts and have open conversations about where where you're coming from and what you need to what specific advice or what you're looking for from from that athlete so there needs to be a very clear um, agreement between whoever you're referring on and the referring clinician
0: Definitely communication. Who would have thought we need to start talking to each other? What a crazy idea. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we've kind of talked. We could go into great detail about other things, about the importance of the subjective assessment and how they I understand completely what you're saying, whether you shouldn't separate the two. But how about, I mean, some of the, it's interesting when you look at traditional objective assessments and some of the tests we use. I'm very interested to hear what tests you do still use out of the many, many, many which were taught and are still taught. Obviously, it'll depend on the run in front of you. But have you got some go to ones which you'll always use? Uh, Yeah, obviously, it's it's
1: very much dependent on on the individual. Um, I suppose the important bit is any tests that we do use, and even the ones that have more validity and reliability around them, is that a, a test on its own is never part, or it never gives you the diagnosis. The vast majority of times, it's a combination of. Of this story and the clinical history and and the tests are used as a as a way to confirm that or, or not. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily I have general go to tests, but in in runners we're generally looking for that they have an adequate capacity or an adequate you know they have the adequate physical attributes required for the level of running that they're that they're actually doing. So. It, that will obviously differ depending on you know if it's a high level elite marathon runner versus if it's somebody that wants to run five k three times a week. so you know I would never lose sight of the importance of testing i suppose what I would refer to as the basics, you know so that there's no there's no obvious impairment that's 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 going to have an impact on their ability to to do this so you know looking at for example calf strength or you know their ability to hop on one leg for example might be some some of the more routine tests that I would that I would do with runners um you know I think a range of movement screen of the lower limb is is generally a very valid thing to do but not over interpreting somebody that might have a little bit of you know restriction of their hamstring length for example and w- we need to let go of these notions that there's an ideal um, and that if somebody doesn't fit the ideal, whether it be hamstring flexibility, ankle dorsiflexion range of movement, that suddenly that, you know, we can't assume that that's the reason they're in pain or that's going to that's going to put them put them at risk. But again, with, with any of these tests, you're going to have a story behind it. You're going to have the patient in front of you. You're going to have a lot more information to judge whether that those impairments may or may not be relevant to that individual
0: i find i find myself more and more especially when i'm writing about it i'll say yeah we do these tests we'll check range of motion dorsiflexion hamstrings and and hip rotation and stuff Um, but we're not going to draw any massive conclusions from it and and we'll kind of note it down and it's part of this jigsaw etc but i do wonder whether a time will come where we realize that a lot of the time later on we're not really drawing on these tests for anything it's they seem to be disappearing more and more. I use the test to rule out stuff, like you say, jumping up and down on the spot, maybe to yeah. check it's not something like something where we're gonna to have to say, right, you need to really pull back the volume or stop running like stress fractures or something. But in terms of if they just come in pain it seems that these tests are becoming less and less relevant. Symmetry, for example, I mean, a lot of the tests we do are checking for symmetry and it still confuses me as a clinician because on the one hand, I'm saying we shouldn't expect runners to be symmetrical because in nature, symmetry doesn't really work. Even in the elites, we don't get this symmetry. And yet a lot of the tests seem to be check the left, check the right. Are they symmetrical? If you take that away, it seems like you're not really left with much.
1: Yeah, I, and again, I, I think it's, we have to be careful with any causal reasoning here. Um, the, the the problem is, the the a comment that I often say is that as clinicians we're we're generally inherently biased because we see people with pain that present to the clinic. We don't see people either without pain that have all of these impairments that that we don't see in the clinic, or people that have pain, and we still don't see in the clinic. So they're, they 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 appear to be functioning. Quite well, so we've got to be careful that the population that we see it's very easy to make causal claims about you know their foot posture and pain or or their hip range of movement and pain when somebody could have a similar range of movement or have a similar have similar deficits um, so to speak and 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 be running pain-free you're perfectly fine so you'll often find in the subjective if somebody has a very rapid or a sharp increase in their training load or it was very clear that life was very busy at the time and there was a lot going on and you know they weren't recovering well and they were run down sometimes the answer is very obvious or at least you know there's a collection of factors that when I say obvious, I, I, we still have to be careful that we don't assume there's a one-on-one relationship between these things. But I suppose the story will fit with you know why these people might be injured, and in, in in those situations, I think putting too much emphasis on these so-called special tests is is often making the athlete more vulnerable because now if we had just addressed the loading factors and and their recovery strategies and you know and their and and reassured them versus identifying all these impairments that they probably never knew they had and now suddenly they're this athlete that's 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 full of broken parts that need to be fixed
0: yeah i mean i i wonder whether like you said at the beginning where we, we we're biased and we only really have people coming in in pain um so we don't see other people i wonder whether it would be interesting um if clinicians actually took the time to make a little record of for example people that walk in with i always use with my students one shoulder higher than the other but they've come in with an achilles issue or something you know because just to write that down just to note it oh today someone came in like that but it wasn't with a shoulder issue and then over like a half a year or something just to have a visual kind of like a useful bit of data to show how many people really are asymmetrical uh, how many people might have I don't know, uh, maybe it's a strength thing as well. Maybe we might find out that people come in and they've got massive tonicity um, in their calves um, or maybe the calf, which is really kind of hypertonic and is actually the one which is fine. It's the other flaccid one, which hasn't got any tone, which is actually painful. I wonder whether the the, the change or shift could come from actually therapists taking a little bit more of the um, incentive kind of by noting themselves down, having a little book, um, because that could be some really interesting data if all the therapists over the country started doing that and somehow it's pulled together. That could produce some very interesting reading, I think.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's the whole cool notion of reflective practice, um, that that we should be reflecting on our practices and, and particularly bits of the assessment that that go against. What diagnosis we're, we're we're pushing on the patient, so they'll always be parts of the assessment that will fit with what we think is going on. But it's equally as important to be very much aware of all the other factors. As you said, they might have the same restriction on the other side, and they don't have pain yeah, on that yeah. side. So any any attempt to reduce a very complex phenomenon like pain and injury to single factor thinking is is never. Going to is never going to help. It, it's you know it's very appealing and it would be lovely if it worked that way, but it's it's just much too complex than that. We even see it with with training loads. Even the m- the more obvious things that some people can just get away with, you know, spike in their training a little bit more than somebody else. That. Does very little change in their training load so even with the more obvious stuff it's it's often not that obvious at all that there's there's a lot of factors that we probably don't consider that we should consider and probably some unknown variables that we're not aware of yet that maybe over the next number of years that we'll become will become we'll become more enlightened about but you know the complexity of of injury and even in sport is 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 a lot more than it's simply down to a a restricted ankle or a tight hamstring or um what, what it, whatever it might be and just briefly on that you'll you'll see some I'm trying to think of the the term that they use but it it's basically looking at complex systems as a way to to explain injury so complex systems mean basically mean that if you try to reduce it to any of its component parts the the outcome is 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 different so injuries are probably emergent in the sense that no one factor is directly causal of the injury, but it's the interaction of something like training loads and sleeping, sleeping habits, and life stress, and fatigue, and recovery, and you know all of these various factors are interacting in non-linear, non-predictable ways to to ultimately lead to the lead to the problem.
0: Yeah, definitely. I like. I can't remember. I'm not sure if it was. I think it might have been Adam Meekins. Maybe it was on his podcast. I can't remember, but they were just, I think it was him and Greg actually talking about the difference between complex and complicated, um, which I think another, now and again, I mean, me personally, but I like words. I enjoy separating the meaning of words but I think it's useful for a therapist who's embarking on this kind of critical thinking and this new way of thinking to actually separate words the same as you would separate for example uh, pain from injury you know which a lot of the time you might think is synonymous but complex and complicated I think is good I think they compared it to like a car engine which is complicated but if you've got the manual or you're trained, you can always fix it because it all works in a certain way. Whereas the human body, and I think they used it in the argument that we shouldn't compare ourselves to cars, the human body's complex, which is different. It's got all this interactive stuff and there's not like a manual where you can just take this out and yep. twist that and tighten that up. It's a really useful distinction. Um, I think, yeah. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. and I, I Like it's not, the interactions are nonlinear, but al- although it's quite complex and we probably, even in the clinic, we won't necessarily fully understand how all of these various factors are, are interacting. We can still look at ways of improving somebody's sleep, for example. We can still educate them about their training volumes and, and progressions of training loads. You know, the body will do its own thing, but when we, when we address these various components, you know, the interaction between these factors, obviously, will will change as well. And we're, we're having some influence over that without necessarily needing to know Exactly how these factors are interacting.
0: Definitely. So you can make someone feel a hell of a lot better and get them back to running, and you might not, for the moment, know exactly how you did it. And you don't have to.
1: Yeah. You, 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 we we know the various bits that we changed, but we 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 don't really understand how all of those things fitted together to yeah, yeah. give us the outcome.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And in the meantime, we kind of use research and evidence based practice to try and work out how things work, so we can make them better. But I think that's a useful take-home message for therapists as well to help somebody. You don't have to label what's going on in their knee. You don't have to say exactly what tissue is being affected because, it, like you say, yeah. it's a multifactorial thing um, which you kind of need to know about. And you can have someone walking out, getting back into running, being very happy, and they don't really know what happened. you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah. I can't believe it's 230 that has got to be the fastest hour <laughs> I have had with any 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 guests so far. I'm quite taken aback. I'm I'm almost checking my phone to see that my computer hasn't gone wrong. Um, <laughs> oh, I wish we had another hour. Um, we haven't, though. But anyway, what time? Um, oh, there's so much more I want to ask you, but we'll save it for Brighton. Right. I can't believe I'm having to stop this conversation. But what have you got coming up, Derek? What's in your life? Let's come away from uh, assessment and running. And what have you got going on?
1: so i suppose outside of outside of my my work um most people will know that i'm a kind of i'm a competitive long distance runner so i'll probably wait until um early next year to to run the marathon so i'll have a few i'll work a little bit on the shorter distances between here and here in january or here in december just to you know just to vary things up a little bit Again, work on probably some of my deficits and in, in preparation for um, to try to run a PB as um, in early, next year, probably March or April. I'll, I'll, I'll target a marathon around that time. So again, it just requires a, a huge amount of preparation to, to run the marathon. I'm generally quite competitive, so you know I'm. I, I could run a marathon sooner, but you know, the I, ha- I have a goal in mind, I have a time in mind, and if I am gonna if I am gonna hit that time, then I have to put my resources into into that and, and 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 plan plan ahead for that. So it's a bit it takes a bit of discipline. I'd I'd like to be running every weekend. I'd like to be racing every weekend, but you, again, you know, you, it's impossible to juggle everything. So the the target is a a good fast marathon in the early part of next year.
0: Yeah, I think the last time we were supposed to speak was like the day or few days after london marathon london marathon went quite well for you this year didn't it
1: yeah i had a really good run in london a lot of work went into that um together with my coach andy i worked a lot on um i worked a lot on my speed work leading up to london i i i was very consistent in my training which i think was the was was the big thing and and having ran the marathon many times previously i've had a lot of i've had a lot of difficult marathons i've had some really good marathons but the difficult ones have been instrumental in in just teaching discipline and and teaching respect of the distance so i think in london it everything just came together i had i I trained really hard i trained well consistently but i had respect for the distance i i I understood how what it what it involves to race the marathon my pacing worked the weather was good so everything just came came together on in april and um i was very pleased with with that performance
0: I think I mean I love hearing about your running exploits and I think it I think we couldn't argue that it helps if you're looking after runners to be a runner yourself we don't have to be as good as you fortunately because I'll never get there but I mean would you agree if you're going to help a runner it's useful to have that background where you know the challenges you know how difficult it is to put theory into practice sometimes.
1: Yeah, I, I especially because as as a clinician, I'm going to be seeing runners in. We we see them when there's an issue, so when they have pain or they, when they're injured, and and you know, that that has a profound effect on on their general well being. You know, for for the vast majority of us, the running is is more of a hobby than it is. You know, it's it, it's not work, so we we use it as much as a coping strategy as a way to manage our. Our life stress and when you I, I think clinicians again need to understand this when when you take somebody's coping mechanisms away for, for them it might be running you you often remove them out of their social environments you know their their mood changes it's much more than just just running and, and I think Tom Goom had a had a nice um uh picture up on twitter recently about just the impact of when we stop people from running and and the the negative effects that 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 has so as a runner myself i can empathize with these people as how how it feels when for whatever reason you're just you're just not able to run
0: definitely it's a very big one and something you could probably put a whole episode uh, about well look Derek, um i'm sorry i really feel bad that the time has beaten us um it's gone so quickly um you're coming down to Brighton I'm very excited about that, along with the other nine It's going to be fantastic seeing you all interacting together. Is there people who have you met um uh, people on I mean, some Bart told Jeffcully have you had a chance to meet them in person or
1: i I don't think I've actually met any any of the people presenting, but you know they, these are all hugely influential um People in 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 the running world and and just in the performance and and the clinical world as well. So it's a it's, it's a huge learning opportunity for both. I think for all the speakers as well as as it is for the participants. And you know all of these people that I've had the pleasure of interaction with online, they're they're all very um, reasonable people. They're all very um, genuine sharing their information you know with 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 the common goal of of improving the health and the the performance and well-being of of runners so i'm really looking forward to it there's going to be a huge opportunity for networking between all between the participants and and the speakers and it just provides a a a forum where we can we can have genuine discussions in a non- kind of a non-structured or you know in a very informal way and you know people have the opportunity to to talk about topics that as you said sometimes we can't talk about properly on social media just because the limits of of social media.
0: Definitely I mean that was one of my I mean it's ironic slightly coming out of a podcast it fueled my kind of desire to actually increase face-to-face participation and that's why I did it I I love doing podcasts, I love chatting to you, and it's very, very useful being able to chat to somebody remotely like this, but I do worry sometimes that I see a lot of workshops and a lot of education now being done remotely because it's so much easier. I watch things like Black Mirror on TV, and I'm scared that that's the way it's all going now, that we'll lose that face-to-face contact, and I still believe that there's a massive element you take away when you just rely on on internet and online. You need that touchy-feely seeing, that person hearing them, that face-to-face communication so yeah i'm very excited to see you all together i think it'd be a great event
1: absolutely yeah i agree
0: right dude and you're going to be talking down there about um do you remember the name of your presentation i think i put you on the spot Dave. uh
1: yeah I, I i think it was putting putting the runner back into running injuries
0: what did we go with that in the end oh fantastic okay so that's yeah. nice no
1: i, I think yeah no, I, I think i think we did yeah, oh,
0: yeah. fantastic. and that's it's brilliant. exactly
1: it's, it's, it's exactly i suppose of what i what
0: i spoke to you about today
1: it's it's about seeing seeing people for people and not not yeah. it's it's not a, it's not a body party irrespective of who who you're treating.
0: Fantastic, and um I'm particularly forward to you know there's a 90 minute uh, Q and A session where all 10 of you will be up on stage and we'll be taking questions from the audience, which will be very good as well. um Although I think most of the speakers are on a similar page in terms of like you said, um, genuine and um, responsible uh, experts in their fields. I'm hoping there's a little bit of debate and different stance points um and i think there will be i think we've got a little bit of uh, there'll be some interesting different ways of seeing things so that should be good well look derek thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it what i'm going to do is i'm just going to um kind of send you back down to the lobby for a second i'll sign off here and then i'll come back down and join you and, and say thank you again okay, okay
1: thanks for having me I can just no, much thank much you Jay. i really
0: appreciate it. it i'll see you in a second thanks right then uh wow i swear that was the quickest i can't believe it. i was looking down the clock thinking where are these minutes going that was really good um i really enjoyed that i need to come down i think i need to go for a walk um that was great i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did if you if you did then uh, make sure you do leave some comments um if you don't follow doke already then uh please try and do so especially on facebook i think that's worth seeing very active maybe twitter as well um And if you enjoyed it and and you want to communicate with him, then, yeah, check him out. Send him something Um, very down to earth guy who very much likes to chat and talk to people. Um, So, yeah, feel free to do that. And as well, also with us, if you enjoy the podcast, as always, do please leave some comments. Um, You might have heard it from other places, but the success of the podcast really does depend on you um, liking us, leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. Um, If you're an Android user, then I'm afraid you have to go to iTunes. Uh, You have to open up iTunes on your laptop. And that's the only way you find RunChat Live and then you leave a nice rating and a nice comment. If you're not going to leave a nice rating or comment, then ignore this message. But if you're going to leave something cool and basically what that does is it just means that Apple chooses to advertise our podcast and it gets through to more people. Um, if you use an iPhone, then that's great. You can do it straight from your own iPhone. They've normally got an app and it just allows you to leave a review and a rating. So, um, yeah, please do that. It really helps Um, i see in the background the ratings going up and down the uk and the states the other day in the states we were number five which was like wow the fifth running podcast in the states that was lovely and that was purely based on a few people leaving reviews so um yeah even grab your mate's phone and whilst they're not looking just grab it download the app and and just you know subscribe run chat live uh, whilst they're not looking they won't know be great you're allowed to do that i think anyway right uh, that's me signing out um i hope you enjoyed it um i won't be here next week because i'm off to i'm so excited i've got to mention it but um yeah i'm off to tunisia um to cover the um 100k um ultra mirage el jarid where star wars was filmed um i'm very excited about that i'm not running it a few people said oh wow i'm really impressed no i'm not running it maybe next year bucket listing but I'm going over just to cover it hopefully do a few interviews with the guys over there see a few faces I've met already Elizabeth Barnes who was on one of the episodes of Unchat Live she will obviously be very keen to win it again this year um, and a host of other runners there I'm very excited to meeting in person um so yeah um I hope to produce something from there uh, it depends on internet connection and but Bert- pretty sure for my hotel room i should be able to bring you something very interesting with some of the runners um uh, so yeah look out for that and otherwise after i come back um, we'll be uh, continuing with some great guests great chat uh, so do subscribe and like us thank you much for joining us my name is matt phillips and this has been episode 34 of run chat live thank you you're listening to run chat live podcast putting the evidence back into running injury and performance